centers up there are well represented. We're also working with, uh, with Treaty 8 to, to talk to them about what building out would look like in assisting them in meeting some of their infrastructure needs. So I wish we could do everything all at once. We can't do everything all at once, but, but do know that, uh, that these are priorities are coming to the table. So I thank you for that. Microphone number two, please. Marianne Sandberg, MD of Willow Creek. Um, thank you, Premier, uh, for all the good work that the government is doing. One of the issues uh, these past few days here has been section 619 of the MGA uh, that has to do with these semi-quidditial judiciary committees such as the NRCB and the AUC. And it has to do primarily with our land use bylaws. And uh, we know that these boards can supersede us uh, with these new energy developments and, for example, even with the NRCB with confined feeding operations, we're running into situations where they apply to these bodies, they get approvals before we as a local municipality have anything to do with them other than the development stage. So our concern is where is the responsibility and why do we even exist with our land use bylaws if that section of the MGA supersedes us. Thank you for that. I think there's sort of two ways that I might want to tackle that issue because it might have two solutions for it. So since no one took me up on asking me what I thought of 20,000 megawatts of solar being built out on prime agricultural land, let me take a moment to tell you what I've learned in the last week. When um, I met with the electricity generators over the last week, and we came close twice over winter in having grid failure. And part of the reason for that, I am told, is that we have 5,000 megawatts of installed power of wind and solar. And when the big Alberta clipper rests over us and we've got snow and ice covering solar panels um, and the wind turbines aren't working, 5,000 megawatts of installed was only generating 100 megawatts of power. So when we look at a proposal for 20,000 megawatts of new solar and wind, my principal concern is grid stability. And we will not have grid stability if all of that ends up getting built out. So that's number one, is that this is a natural gas basin. We are a natural gas province, and we will continue to build natural gas power plants because that is what makes sense in Alberta. And there is a great opportunity for us to use carbon capture, utilization, and storage to reduce emissions. And that also allows for us to have lower overall emissions and meet federal targets. But I raise that because we're in court this week with the federal government over Bill C-69. And we've call, called it the No More Pipelines Bill, but I've called it the No More Build Anything Anywhere in Alberta Without Federal Approval Bill because they don't want us to be able to build 75 kilometers of new highway without an environmental assessment federally. They don't want us to be able to build any new natural gas plants higher than 200 megawatts without federal approval. There's a whole pile of other things. So they're using their power that they've given themselves over the environment to completely invade our provincial jurisdiction. There is a reason our constitution under section 92A gives electricity generation to the provinces and it's because of our geographic differences. Yes, hydro makes perfect sense in Quebec and BC and Manitoba, and Ontario has nuclear and, and, and hydro as well. But we have to keep on 
fueling our economy with natural gas power plants. And we're getting to a point of grid stability, so I'm just not going to let that issue of, um, of the federal government wanting to invade our jurisdiction compromise our ability to do what we need to do here. So to me, the, I'll, I'll tell you what I've observed that happens. Solar and wind don't seem to generate much electricity for us, but it does generate carbon credits, which are purchased by Ontario companies to offset and, and improve their ESG scores, right? Uh, and, and I can tell you that we have to have a better balance. I'm supportive of uh, solar and wind projects where they make sense, but I can tell you from my own conversations with people in my own community that putting solar panels on prime agricultural land does not make sense, especially if it's not producing power. Especially, like the one I drive past in Brooks every day I go down there, is covered with, with ice and snow and not generating any power at all. The other thing I've heard about wind turbines is that I understand, is it annoying that we can't land fixed wing um, medevac planes now because wind turbines have been built too close to the landing runway? The, like these, it, I've, I've talked to a neighbor in, uh, in the Medicine Hat area who says that her property, she can't do aerial spraying now because the neighbor approved turbines that are too close to her property. So when, when you start seeing these projects impacting the ability of the work that you do, we have to put some more fences around that. So that is a very active conversation that we are having right now, is how do we get to a better balance? How do we make sure that reliability and affordability are essential decision-making points as we approve these power projects. So that's, I hope, going to address one of the issues that you have on the AUC making decisions that seem to override what some of the municipalities want to do. Now, the other one on, um, on intensive livestock operations, I, I, I think I'll need to get more feedback on that one because it looks to me like we want to maintain the rural character of rural communities. And uh, while I accept that sometimes the um, intensive uh, livestock operations might cause additional impact on the community. I, I want to make sure that we have an environment that's going to continue to support that as well. So I think there probably needs to be a, a bit more interaction between our government and your governments so that we make the right decisions. But, uh, as, uh, but, I, but I think that that has been just an essential part of making sure that our, our beef industry remains healthy and vibrant. And we've got to make sure that we're supporting that. Maybe there's an issue as well of cumulative uh, issues. I, I know that we're talking about biodigesters in, uh, my in, in my community around High River. I've been told by the company that biodigesters are actually a very common aspect of any intensive livestock operation in Germany to be able to mitigate against smells. And so I think that with technology, we should be able to address some of the harms. I, but I, but I, ex I, I accept the fact that it's got to be very frustrating for municipalities. You're the ones who are impacted by this. If there's extra costs associated with upgrading transportation, you're the ones who are having to, to shoulder that cost. So we've got to be a bit more interactive about how we deal with that. And I'm sure I'll hear more from Paul McLaughlin about how to solve this problem. Those are my initial thoughts. <laughs> Thank you, Premier. Thank you very much for your answer. We'll go to microphone number three because this is we've got to get them through. Let's go. Uh, good morning, Madam Premier, uh, Jim Wood, Mayor of Red Deer County. And thank you very much for your concern of agriculture land. Um, I think one of the big things that we're seeing right now is that the developments that are happening uh, through the solar panels, um, there's really n nothing concrete to ensure that at end of life of these particular panels that they will be reclaimed properly. 
understanding that if it was a gravel pit, for instance, the, the, the province of Alberta would ensure that a bond would be in place. I think that a directive needs to go to the AUC to ensure that they in fact take a full a full 100% reclamation bond for these developments. Uh, you know, th this land is our prime land. It produces food. If someday then these go, go by the side, you know, they could produce food again if there was a bond to put put them back to a normal shape. So hope for your help on that. I, um, I like where you're going with that. Um, I would add wind turbines to that too, because what I'm concerned about is that we, we are getting to end of life, I think, of some of the early projects. And what happens? Who, who bears the cost of uh, dismantling those? In the case of wind turbine farms, as I understand it, uh, when installing them typically is 1,500 truckloads to be able to install them. So that means someone's got to pay 1,500 truckloads to take them away once they're at the end of their useful life. And it's a little bit different than the energy sector because they're, once they're done, there's no more revenue being generated. So there's no additional dollars to be able to pay for that reclamation. With our energy companies, we have, to, you, you, we, we have a balance between assets and liabilities. And so there's still revenue generating to be able to pay some of those liabilities. That being said, I can't impose something on solar and wind until we figure out a, a liability and reclamation model on our traditional oil and natural gas that works. And so uh, it, it's true. Uh, it's, a, it's a big issue. I mean, I've been on a landowner advocate since 1997. And, in, and that's when I discovered that we have this inactive well problem, that we have a bunch of inactive wells. I think it's now 20,000 that have been uh, not producing for more than 20 years and were drilled prior to 1980. So imagine that. Wells that were drilled in 1960, they've been inactive for at least 20 years or longer, and they're still sitting there unreclaimed. I can just imagine what your, what your race base thinks of that. It's like, who's, who's going to ultimately pay for this? Who's ultimately going to clean it up? And then when we had the Sequoia and Trident failures, we saw exactly what happened. When you have a pile of inactive wells and a company goes belly up, it goes over to the Orphan Well Association. And that puts a lot of pressure on that. So we've got a, we've got a big problem that we allowed for too many of these inactive sites to just be carried forward without having clearer rules around, around cleanup around them. So we've seen a couple of things that have happened. One was the federal site rehabilitation program that came in, and that was a billion dollars. And I think it really stimulated a huge amount of activity and, ab and abandonments and environmental companies who are now quite expert at this. We wanna see that continue. We've brought in a new directive starting this year where companies have to pay off 3% of their liability out of their own resources every year. That's $740 million this year of required cleanup, and it's going to increase 9% per year. And finally, one of the things that we're looking at is a program to try to get these worst wells cleaned up, because I'll tell you, even through what I've observed over the last few years, companies do not want to touch those flare pits and sumps and um, the, the, the sites that might be 100 or 200 or $300,000 to clean up. And so we have to, and, but those are the worst ones. Those are the ones that the landowner needs cleaned up the most so that it doesn't end up impacting their property. So we're, we're working on trying to find a way to ensure that we're cleaning up this liability on the oil and gas side. And once people feel comfortable that we've got the right model there, then the next obvious question is, what are we going to do about solar and wind? And part of what I have heard, um, and I'll get feedback on this, is, is there some appetite for us to require a certain amount of the revenues of a company to be set aside for environmental cleanup, 
in the early days when they're generating revenue, and then it follows the uh, the site to whoever purchases it afterwards. That's that's what I that's what I have heard even from small producers that they would like so that even if somebody does take on one of these old sites, at least it'll carry a pot of money associated with it. And when you apply that same thinking then to solar and wind, they'd have a certain percentage of their revenues that would be set aside every year so that there's enough money available at the end of it for the reclamation. That's the kind of thing I think we need to do. Do you have more you want to say? Is it okay to turn on? Like, yeah, microphone number three for a second. The, 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 concern, the concern is this, is that some of these solar may be only viable due to carbon credit grants and so forth that may not be here forever. The companies may not have enough, where, enough, enough finances um, to, in fact, do the cleanup. And if they're not viable enough to put a bond up to start with to cover their cleanup, then they're not viable. And, and I think that it needs to be addressed at the start, or we're going to have the same problem that we had with the orphan wells. And why would we want to bring that to the province of Alberta? I can, t I can tell you it's an active discussion. We, uh, we know that we have to have that full life cycle. In fact, I put it in the, um, the uh, mandate letters for my ministers to make sure that we have parity in how we address these, these liabilities for the future. And parity means looking at all of the different types of installations. And we have to, that has to be, that has to be the, uh, uh, the company who pays for that. Because otherwise, I'm not, I, we have a system in the oil and, uh, in the conventional oil and gas world where viable oil and gas companies pay the bill if a company fails. That's what happens. We don't have that same model in solar and wind. So it is an open question of what happens when these companies fail. Who takes the, who, who dismantles the site? So do know we're talking about that and I look forward to RMA giving me some robust policy suggestions about how we should address that. So thank you. Thank you for the question. Thank you for the answer. You can tell what the theme of our conference is, Premier, um, was renewables <laughs> for sure. Uh, microphone number one, please. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Dan Bobert, Northern Sunrise County. Uh, this is an easier one to fix. Um, we passed a resolution yesterday, it's the second time we pass it, on casino gaming uh, equitable fun uh, funding distribution. Right now, uh, large uh, centers like Edmonton get four times more than small centers. They get more than Red Deer, more than Lethbridge, more than Medicine Hat, more than Grand Prairie. And the wait times in smaller areas are longer. So I, I, I don't know why it's taken so long to have what's called provincial pooling. Our kids in northern and southern Alberta are no different than Edmonton kids. Our seniors are no different. So why not? Why would the distribution of these charitable funds be different? We're all the same Albertans. Thank yeah. you. I think Yeah, thank you for that. And just so you, you know, I've been lobbied on this one too from, from many people who are concerned about it. My understanding is, uh, I think there's a casino in the Camrose area where the charities get something like $12,000 when they do a casino, whereas in Calgary or Edmonton, it's more like forty dollars or $45,000. So I, I, know, I know the issue. I'm, I'm hoping we can find perhaps an elegant solution for this because anytime you talk about pooling revenues in a room full of folks who have who come from rural Alberta, I think there's a little nervousness, so I don't want to talk about pooling revenues. <laughs> what I would say is that uh, we have an opportunity with um, online gaming to create a new revenue stream. We've been a little bit late to the game, so to say, on this, um, but Ontario has a model that I'm looking very closely at 
Because if we develop the Ontario model for gaming, I'm told it would generate about $100 million worth of revenue. And so we have obviously partnerships with First Nations and terrestrial casinos that we would have to work on that revenue split. But that may give us a new source of revenue for us to be able to address the discrepancy that you're talking about. Um, but it, it, is a, it is a problem, because you're quite right. Every, there is such high need in every single community. And we want to make sure that uh, that we have fairness. It's just a matter of trying to figure out the right way of doing it so that those who have become accustomed to getting that larger amount don't feel like something is being taken away. I'd rather find a mechanism to bring the uh, the other ones up. Yeah, that's what we're looking at. I feel like I should answer one more. What do you think? Let's do one. We'll do one more. Microphone number two. Morning, Premier. Karina Williams, Northern Sunrise. County. So my question is for victim services. There are many services, especially in the Peace Region area, that have been successful for 30 years. They are there for the supports for those of victims of crime and trauma. But now, <clears throat> with this new zonal model, their moral has been taken away. They're severing the community that they're in because they're wanting to poke at something that is successful. All I'm asking is, I realize there are some models that are not working, but the ones that are, they should be left alone. They should be left mm. to do the work that's very important. They are the support for the RCMP. And by the way, I do not like the APPS model. <laughs> I am a big supporter of the RCMP. Well, it's, it's, uh, you'll, you'll see that what we are doing on, let me answer the second one first, is that we're leaving it to municipalities to decide the kind of policing that they want. And so there's um, a couple dozen municipalities that have asked us for a grant so that they can explore developing their own municipal force. Um, Grand Prairie, for instance, has decided that they want to go the pathway of a municipal force like other large municipalities. There is one rural municipality that wants us to set up a sheriff's detachment and um, I think that there'll be, an, uh, to my, my point is, I, or my, my purpose would be that I think that this should be driven by those at the local level. So if, if it makes sense um, because a community gets to a certain size or wants to have more local control, we want to be able to facilitate that. And our sheriffs are, I think, going to be really important to adding additional uh, services and support because we all know we've got a massive rural crime problem. A lot of that rural crime problem is fed by large cities and people coming out to rural to steal equipment so that they can feed a drug addiction. So we're addressing the drug addiction side of, of issues. And we're also making sure that we've got additional officers on the street. So we embedded sheriffs in Calgary and Edmonton. And what the interesting thing was is people started calling us and saying, why can't we get sheriffs too? So be, don't be surprised if you see more sheriffs going into different communities. But we want this to be municipal-led, and that's what we're going to do. On the issue of victim services, let me take that away. Because uh, sometimes we make decisions on centralization just because it seems like that's going to be administratively efficient. But sometimes something that's administ administratively efficient doesn't deliver the pr appropriate level of, um, of, community, um, uh, of community support. That we, we, need to, we need to make sure that you have the, the, the services that you need in the community. And so I've started that process slowly with Alberta Health Services. Alberta Health Services has centralized way too much. And so I know that there's a bit of a culture in government 
that they, it's more convenient and easier to deliver services in large centers. And so it's gonna do a little bit of unwinding for us to figure out what the right balance is. Some things, yes, need to be centralized for efficiency, but some things make far more sense to keep in the community. And this is an example of one that I'll have to bring up with our minister. So thanks for your feedback, I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Premier, for your generous time and definitely have some time with us. Uh, the Premier will be available in the lobby uh, for about 15 minutes, so actually in the media room. But I do say on behalf of, of the Rural Municipalities of Alberta, Uniquely Rural is our campaign to make sure you're respecting that we're uniquely rural. And I did tell your colleagues that, that you know, rural people sometimes get lost in the city, and I asked your colleagues to actually, with these signs, to put them in their in their door, just saying this is a safe place. Now, I was corrected by a few of our members. Don't bother putting this in your window to say a safe place if you don't have beer or wine in your house. I was corrected. <laughs> uh, it's really not a safe place. So, Premier, on behalf of the board and the rest of the folks here, thank you very much and thank much you. appreciated. Thank you, and I'll see you in the lobby.